Welcome to the Lady Lawyer League podcast. They're a league of lady lawyers in an all-female law firm in Omaha, Nebraska called Hightower Ref Law. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of what it's like to be a lady lawyer and an entrepreneur. Now it's time to talk about the law, share real-life stories about representing clients, and discuss the current events of the week. It's the Lady Lawyer League podcast with Susan Ref and Tracy Hightower Henney. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about custody and when kids get to decide the custody of the case. If kids get to decide. Right, if. Situations where if and maybe when kids and get to. And it depends. <laughs> As usual, if, in, when, and it depends. Yeah, those are like the lawyerly who, what, when, where, why, and how. It sounds like a law school question. If, then, when, and the answer is it depends. Yeah. Just always end with it depends. It depends. No, Yeah, lawyers never really want to be certain, right? Yeah, like we can't guarantee it. But if this happens, then this could possibly happen. But it depends on this other thing that we haven't even talked about yet. Right. So that's, that's, that's the overview of the podcast today. <laughs> Get ready. Strap in. Um, so uh, your hair is really pink, and it's been pink for... <laughs> um, like this whole week, right? It is pink. Um, I, you know, my sister-in-law is my hairdresser, which I'm really lucky because, you know, you kind of feel like you have to go to your family member, but she's great, so that's good. Um, what if she was terrible? Would I, you keep going just because she's your sister-in-law? No, I'd have to find some excuse. Uh, you know, like her location isn't very convenient for me, so I I would probably base it on that. So... Um, so she's good. And I've always thought like it would be really fun to have a little pink stripe or something. Well, my hair is so short that you can't just stick a pink stripe in. And anyway, so she finds this pink shampoo and it's hot pink and you use it as a normal shampoo and it colors your hair pink. And then she told me two regular shampoos later, it will be gone. So did she put this in or did you put it in? No. So I put it in. Um, you know, and so in the shower, there's just like pink coming down my body because it's goes in it's and that it strong. sticks. And yeah, so there's, it's supposed to come out two shampoos later and there's been probably 20 shampoos and it's still pink. Did, did you put it just on part of your hair? Cause right now it's only like on the top. Right. It sticks to any color that you have. So oh. it's, it has stuck to the highlight system that's in my hair. So I enjoy the pink. It was lucky I didn't have to go to court this week. I don't know what would what some judges would think. Probably I mean I can't I can't see at this point in your career a judge being like, "Oh, well, you can't appear in my courtroom or whatever because you have pink hair." It depends, right? It depends on which judge. It does depend <laughs> as usual. So anyways, it's still pink. Um I don't know really what I'm supposed to do about it. Um and if I really care about it at this point. Right now. I think you should get another color. <clears throat> On top of it? Yeah. And but see what happens. Mix. What does pink mix with yellow? It turns into mushy, right? Pink doesn't mix with other colors well. So have you consulted with your sister-in-law what to do? She's in Vegas right now. <laughs> I'm sure her phone works. Yeah. I was trying not to bother her about my pink hair because it was okay for now. But what what makes pink? What two colors make Red pink? and white. Right, I think yes, that is true. But then red made red is made from blue and yellow. I don't know. 
So math and colors we're bad at. <laughs> so listeners, help us out. Colors. Now we're bad at colors. Great. <laughs> Good thing we don't really need to do colors when we talk about custody. Right. Um, so I have um, two large pink zits on my chin. <laughs> Did you color them? No. This is so annoying. I'm like almost 50 years old and I have two giant zits on my chin. I'm looking the big microphones in your face. I can't see them from here. They're getting better. Like, and I literally did the right thing this time, right? I didn't pick at them. I didn't put excessive makeup on them to try to cover them up or anything. I literally see nothing on your face. Still. They're like they're like horns sticking, <laughs> like a thing sticking out of my chin. They're, so they're like bottom unicorn horns on your chin. It's like, yeah, like a rhinoceros horn sticking out of my chin. I think a rhinoceros horn is still on its head, right? It's on its nose, I think. Oh, true. Has so, a picture of rhinoceros. But it's now. like, at what point do we get to grow out of this stupid stuff? Like Never. with our skin. Never, right? Right. So then you have to do the green stick, right? When you have like red on your face, you oh. counterbalance with green. Yeah. And I didn't do that to try to, you know, like I was like, it's, I don't really have anything major this week where I want to make sure no one can see, you know, I, I didn't pick at them. I didn't do anything and they just are not going away. So... Maybe so, this is part of getting older. So this episode is about color. Pink hair, pink zits. I think it's I think it's as we get older, it's like less fucks that we give, right? About what people think about our pink hair, pink zits. Right. But it's still hard. I think being a professional, right? Well, and I mean, I've kind of had skincare issues like my whole life with, you know, I had acne pretty bad when I was a kid. And I've never really been one to just slap a whole bunch of makeup on. So, you know, and I feel like I have a good skincare routine. So I, I, and these are, you know, it's like, why, why on my chin? Anyway. I don't know who's going to answer that question for you. Probably no one. Yeah. It depends. <laughs> depends on who you ask. <laughs> yeah. If you ask a dermatologist, they'll tell you why. Yes. But this is a good reminder to, for me to go to my dermatologist because I need to do that at least yearly. So... Great. Let's talk about kids and custody and divorce. Yes. So this is obviously a huge topic. And so today's podcast, we want to narrow that topic really into when and if and it depends when kids can testify. We we get that question so often and usually even on day one, right? If a client is interested in their kid having a say in some sort of custody, we are hearing that at the consult. And it comes in the form of at what age can my kid come into court and tell the judge what they want? Because Google will tell you there's some magic age. I don't even know what Google says the age is. And I don't know if other states have like a threshold age, but Nebraska does not. Nebraska does not say at a certain age, then kids are allowed to come in the courtroom and testify. I think it seems to be that a lot of people get from the internet that somehow 12 years old is a magical start. And that's so young. I, I seem to hear 12, 13, 14 um, I feel like 12 and 14 are the ones I hear all the time. That's a big spread. <laughs> I'm guessing maybe those numbers are coming up, maybe when people are Googling. I, I'm not sure. And asking Jeeves. 
Jeeves probably has a totally different answer. But the other thing that's really important to for the listeners is that, you know, we are lawyers in Nebraska and a child for custody purposes is considered a child until they turn 19. So oftentimes we even have clients come and ask, well, my kid's 17, surely they're old enough to testify in court. Or maybe we it doesn't even start with a client recognizing that a kid telling a judge what they want to do actually is in the form of testimony at some point. So we are getting our clients say um, to us, typically in that consult, well, my kid gets to decide, right? And that question is so wrought with so many different answers that we can provide that getting to decide means a lot of different things. And we only ever get this question or this statement from the parent where the kid is apparently saying, that's the parent I want to live with. The other parent, of course, <laughs> the other parent doesn't say, "Oh, is my kid going to come to court and testify against me?" Right. So, so the other thing in Nebraska, and probably most states, but in Nebraska, we have two different kinds of custody. We have legal custody, and very separately, we have physical custody. So, legal custody is the parents' decision-making abilities for their kids. So that often relates to medical decisions, educational decisions, and religious decisions. And that's almost it, right? Yeah, legal custody um, is decision-making. And and I tell clients and consults right off the bat, you know, the majority of judges are going to assume that you've been married for quite a while. You're both fit enough to make decisions on behalf of your kids. And I think what their point in doing joint legal custody is to not um, have one parent cut the other parent out of decision-making for the kids. But what do you tell the clients that say, but Susan, I've been the parent in our marriage that's made all the decisions and I make all the doctor's appointments and I take the kids to all the doctor's appointments and all their activities. So I should have sole legal custody. So what I tell people like that is I say that's very normal in a family where one parent does that kind of work. And that doesn't mean the other parent's incapable. And it doesn't mean that you're not involving the other parent. You know, you're not saying, I took Timmy to the doctor today and he had his checkup and he got a flu shot and, and he's super healthy. Like, I mean, it, it's kind of silly for both parents to take time off work or whatever to go to the doctor, to have the doctor say, your kid's totally fine. Now, you know, if, if the kid has special needs, that's a whole different story. But when they're, you know, routine things, I think most families get in a group. I mean, I'm the one in my family that takes my son to all the appointments. I mean, and then I just give my husband an update. I'm like, hey, Jonathan had a doctor's appointment today. He's totally fine. And that that just works, but it doesn't mean the other parent, you know, my husband isn't capable of doing that or shouldn't be involved in the decision making to do it. And that's, I think, how judges look at it. So are you telling me that the history of what you do in your marriage is not a factor of what a judge takes into consideration of what you're going to go doing forward as a divorced couple? I think the judge would consider the history, but if it's very routine and normal, like like what you've described, like one parent just always takes the kid to the doctor or the dentist, I think the judge is going to be like, okay. okay. And the, the other thing to remember <laughs> is probably one parent's still only going to take the kid to the doctor, even if you are divorced, because it's just convenient. Right. So legal custody is a separate thing. And 
we often sometimes tell clients that really want to fight hard for sole legal custody that it's really not likely you're going to get sole legal custody unless the other parent is all of the above, a drug dealer, a pedophile, and has a history of making really bad decisions on behalf of your child. And does meth in front of the children on a daily basis five times a day. Like all of those things have to really be um, happening, really. You have to be the worst parent, not just sometimes not the best parent. Right. That, the worst parent all the time, every minute of the day. Yeah. So, so likely you're going to have joint legal custody. But then when it comes to physical custody, that's the amount of days and amount of overnights that each child is having with their parent. And that's really where we get into, can a kid have some decision-making piece to that? So, yeah, so it's the schedule. Like, where is Sarah going to be on what days of the week? Yeah, so because it depends whether a kid gets to testify or have a decision in this piece of custody, it really breaks down into what's the age and maturity level of the child. The law in Nebraska gave us some really helpful guidelines, right? Yeah, super helpful. <laughs> it's really clear. Put these things into play and then the judge will make a decision. So it's got fluffy language like on sound reasoning whether the child is of sufficient age of comprehension. And what that really means is, is the judge finding that this child is mature enough despite their chronological age. So you may have a 17-year-old who is super immature, gets really bad grades, isn't able to understand the difference of telling the truth and a lie, and that judge is going to say, they can't testify. I don't trust them, what they're going to tell me. And you may have a 12-year-old who is super mature, and that same judge may say, they get to testify. So if... If a case is going towards trial on the custody issue and a parent thinks they would like to have their child testify, you know, technically the, the kid is just a witness and, and you can call whatever witnesses you want to call on your behalf. Like a, a parent may say, I want to call my sister to testify. I might, I might want to call the preschool teacher. I might call my neighbor. So the, the child is considered a witness, but they're treated very differently inside the courtroom and by the judge. Right. So if you want your child to testify in our office, we're going to do a lot of communication about why, what's the reason, and are there alternatives to potentially putting your child either in the courtroom or in the judge's chambers to talk potentially badly about one of their parents and we're going to have some conversation about what are those alternatives before we even talk about putting a bringing the child to court at all, right? Right. So one of the one of the my favorite uh, alternative is if the child is in therapy, having a therapist come and testify basically as to what would be in the child's best interest. That way you're kind of getting the same, you're getting the child's opinion in, but it doesn't come in as the child's opinion. It actually comes in as the therapist's opinion because the therapist and the child are generally aligned. Right. So if we have a therapist working with the child, they're going to have set up some treatment goals and um, maybe coping skills. So let's let's say we have a child who is 15 years old and 
they are adamant that they don't want to go to one parent's house. And they're going to work with their therapist on, you know, what are the reasons for that? Let's dive into that and let's figure out some coping skills because likely, and we tell our clients this, you're probably never going to have a parenting schedule where the judge says the one child never has to go see the other parent. I saw a statistic, I think about 10 years ago, that in Nebraska, it was like a overview of parenting plans that were final. And it said something like 2% of parenting plans, final parenting plans ended with supervised visits for one parent. And so, you know, maybe a case might start that way, but to finish that way is, is super rare. So I tell clients that kind of thing all the time too. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of different end results of a parenting plan, um, and supervised visitation is pretty stringent. It's probably the, one of the most restrictive types of parenting time. I think it would be unheard of for a judge to say one parent gets no parenting time whatsoever, ever, unless... I mean, I can't. Unless even, you're all of the above, right? You're doing meth in front of the child every day. You're a pedophile. But in those cases, the judge usually says, if you've done treatment, if you show 400 clean drug tests, if you have a sponsor, if you, if your therapist recommends it, if the child's, I mean, like, right? The judge gives the person the steps to get to parenting time. Right. They might be completely unreachable for that person. But the person has the ability to get parenting time. So we're talking, though, about a therapist being involved with whatever age child that just doesn't want to go to that parent's house. And let's say none of those things are present, right? We don't have really a bad parent. Just child has some sort of desire based on whatever reason that they don't want to go to that parent's house. So what what is the therapist going to be testifying about or, or what cases have you had working with a therapist? So most of the cases where their kids are in therapy is there's, there's either been an event with that parent that the kid like points to as this is the moment where I've decided I don't want to see that person. And it usually involves discipline, either physical or non-physical where the child thinks it was too much. Like they've made up their mind, like I don't want to be with, uh, my dad anymore because after I got in trouble at school, this is what we usually hear. After I got in trouble at school, he took my phone. I, this is like <laughs> the thing, right? And mom lets me have it. And mom lets me have my phone 24-7. Um, and it's, it's, it's like a teenage thing, you know, these that kids have, they're stubborn and they don't want to see that parent, but They've they've escalated it. I just saw on TikTok, uh, it shows a kid walking on a treadmill, and the mom says, "Every time my kid wants to watch cartoons, I make him walk walk on the treadmill while he's watching." So there's the iPad on the treadmill, and then it says, "And my kids walked 16 miles today." <laughs> it's this like eight year old on this treadmill. That's a great idea. Um, so I saw we live right by you know one of the high schools, and I was getting gas and the the cross country team runs you know and you can tell it's like a gaggle of like 14 to 17 year old boys they run up to a stoplight and they have to stop because the stoplight doesn't you know it's red or whatever half of them whip out a phone from their pocket and they're like looking at their phone 
Wow. Well, and you know how people, when they run, they do that like little jog in place to yeah. keep, I don't know, keep their heart rate up or whatever. They're doing that and they're looking at their phone. And there's one kid. It's just like the treadmill on TikTok. There was, I'm like, oh my God, you ha- you can't even go for a run and not get on your phone. I did wonder if maybe they were using some sort of running app where they had to like pause it or I, I don't know. That's called giving them the benefit of the doubt. Which I'm I'm going to do. But I did appreciate your use of the word gaggle. Um, <laughs> I think, is that for ducks mostly? Geese. Geese. I don't know what a group of ducks is called. Probably also a gaggle. I really like those uh, words to identify different groups of things. So a grouping of 10, 14 to 17-year-old boys has been identified by uh, has been identified by Susan as a gaggle. Gaggle. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean a lot of times what precipitates these in- interventions by therapists is probably normal teenage stress and normal reactions to kids when their parents split up. I think But then they they like they like escalate something about the one parent. I think a lot of what I see in cases too, as far as teenagers go, is if one parent has started a new relationship, that can be really shocking for you know a teenage child to wrap their mind around. Um, it is true that in a lot of divorce cases, people are starting relationships before their divorce is final. <gasps> not surprising. What? Really? This is not news to you. It, but it's news, I think, to to people that don't do what we do. Yes, yes. So a therapist, if a therapist is involved, um, they're likely, their job in our mind is to give some recommendations to the court. So a judge can listen to what has the therapist worked with that child in treatment and um, does the therapist have any sort of input to give to the judge. And the and another alternative, often when we have younger children, maybe they're not in therapy for whatever reason, we will ask the court to appoint what's called a guardian ad litem. Which doesn't mean that that person is the child's guardian. Yes. It's it's like fancy lingo for lawyer for kids. Yes. Basically. And there's some technicalities between the difference of a lawyer for a child and a guardian ad litem for a child. But in Nebraska, a guardian ad litem typically is another lawyer that gets appointed in order to help the judge determine what's in the best interest of the child. So they are literally tasked with doing an investigation. And in my experience, I've been a guardian ad litem in lots of cases. And in my, I mean, it it goes one of two ways. Most of the time, the judge has you write a report that goes to both lawyer, like mom's lawyer, dad's lawyer. And then you're done because I think the the majority of the time those lawyers know like, okay, well, if the guardian ad litem, their opinion is this, that's what the judge is going to do. So why go to trial and muck up the waters and make it all? So it induces settlement. Yes. Like induces labor. Because <laughs> I didn't know if the word induce was correct, but it induces settlement. I think that's a good. It u- promotes settlement. Yes. It helps but uh, there's cases, too, where as guardian ad litem or I've been on cases where the guardian ad litem actually testifies in the trial, too. Yeah, maybe because one parent doesn't like what their report says or not. So the attorneys then can cross-examine the guardian ad litem, like, how did you come to your conclusion? What, you know, what are you basing it on? 
Um, so what types of things did you have to do as a guardian ad litem? So what I always do first is I try to meet with each parent, just the parents, like, you know, meet with the mom, meet with the dad. Um, that can be on the phone. It can be in person. Just get their take on what's going on, the background. I ask them what their child is like, you know, what they're interested in, you know, what do they think their child is going to say to me? What do you think, what does their child know about the divorce case? Because sometimes kids don't know very much and sometimes they know way too much. So so then you're asking the parent, what do you think child's going to say to you? And that parent says exactly word for word what the child says. And that's like the big red coaching flag. Right. After I meet with the, the parent, parents, then I meet with the kid kid or kids and I I all if the parents are already separated I always meet with the kids at both parents house because it's amazing that the kid will tell you what that parent wants you to hear when they're in that parent's house yeah um also you potentially should talk to school babysitters daycares um that if the child has a therapist talk to the therapist um Many times when I've been guardian ad litem, I'm making a recommendation for joint custody, even though one parent is pushing pretty hard for mm-hmm. um, sole custody with them. And so that's a good alternative to potentially asking the judge to literally listen to the kids in court testifying, right? So we have therapist as an alternative coming to testify a guardian ad litem being appointed and giving a recommendation because those are the types of things that we really want to look at is how can we keep the kid out of testifying in court? Right. And and when I am guardian ad litem, if the child says to me, I really only want to live with my dad, you know, and I ask the why and I get into that, that doesn't mean that's what I'm going to recommend to the judge just because the kid said it, even if it sounds very reasonable. Um, but I will make sure that my report te- tells everyone that that is what the child has told me. It's it's not a secret what the kid has told me so that everyone is aware of what the child is telling me. But as guardian ad litem, it's your job to testify to what you think is in the best interest of the child. And ultimately, the judge's decision has to be founded on the best interest of the child. Right. That's the big, grand, boilerplate language that is the end result. So if a child is going to testify because, you know, the lawyer has decided they think it would be helpful to their case, and when we do it, we gen- we meet with the child ahead of time, talk to them to base our opinion, you know, can this child, you know, tell a good story? Um, do they seem to know the difference between the truth and a lie? That's That's a big one, right? Wait, do all adults know that? And it's so funny because the, what the judges do, you know, you know, Joey, if I told you the sky was green, would that be the truth or would that be a lie? And the kid's like 17. Yeah. <laughs> Every judge. And, and I think so judges don't want to have kids testify. I think that's pretty clear across the board that judges think that our job is to either figure out an alternative or to, you know, magically be able to come to an agreement between the two attorneys without having the kids testify. So if we ultimately come down to this, we don't have an alternative, the kid's going to testify, we first have to ask permission of the judge to allow the kid to testify, right? Yeah, and so we would we would file a motion to allow the child to testify in the judge's chambers. 
And, and that would eliminate the child testifying in front of either parent. Yeah. So the so logistically, the parents are not in front of the child. The child's not sitting in the witness chair looking at the parents in court saying, I want to live with dad. And mom's sitting there, you know, crying and sad. So have you had kids testify in chambers? I have. Um, I have. It's happened two ways in my experience. And I think this is pretty standard. Either the judge has them in and it's just the judge and the kids and the court reporter, nobody else. That seems to be when the kids are a little bit older. And then I've had it where I'm in in the judge's office and so is the other lawyer and no and the kid and the court reporter. So no um no parents in the room, nobody else but the lawyers and when the lawyers are in there, they they're not talking. You know, the the judge is doing all the talking with the kids. I've had I've never had a case where I'm not in the judge's chambers when the kids are testifying. And it's been with a handful of different judges, but it always happens where the judges ask the lawyers ahead of time for a list of questions they'd like the judge to ask the kids. They never ask any of those questions though. They just have a conversation with the kid and they tell the lawyers, you're going to sit on that couch behind the kids and I don't want them to see you. And I don't want you to say anything as if like the kids are going to forget that we're sitting there in the room. And I remember one judge um, has a love seat in the chambers. And so here I am sitting on this love seat with the opposing counsel you know, and and this love seat is very deep, so you're like really lounged back, and you're also trying to take notes, and um, you're sitting next to this opposing counsel. Which ultimately, if the kids are testifying, it's probably a pretty contentious case. So here you are sitting next to opposing counsel in the super deep love seat, trying not to move or say anything because the judge thinks that the kids are going to forget you're in there, and then the judge just has the conversation with the kids, and it's very very weird and bizarre and awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I feel like the couches in the judge's office aren't meant for the lawyers to be sitting on. No, there were there were many yeah. pillows on this love seat too that had like had to be moved. It was it was very funny. Um and <laughs> I think judges try really hard to do a good job of um making kids feel comfortable if in that moment they're going to have to testify, but I really think that oftentimes judges don't take into consideration a lot of what kids say in, in testimony. And it can be really scarring for a child to look back, you know, as an adult about that moment in testifying. So on that point, I had a case where both kids were going to testify, but only one felt really strongly. And the other one was just going to testify, you know, I'm fine. I, I like both my parents, you know, but the judge, the judge was like, if one's going to testify, I'm going to hear from both of them. And in her chambers, before the trial started, the judge was like, ah, I just don't really feel super comfortable having having the kids testify because if I ultimately decide differently than what they tell me, then they're going to blame themselves. And they're going to say, well, if I would have testified differently, I would have gotten what I wanted. My response to that is, I think you're giving kids way too much credit because kids don't ever blame themselves for anything they've done wrong. They blame everyone else. I mean, I think 
that's, that's interesting though that's but, very common sense to what the judge said but i don't know if that's true i do think though that that is something that kids might have to work through in therapy as adults right looking back on yes. that yeah but i think that's that just goes to show you know if as a total wrap up to this conversation is we're going to do a lot of what we can to try to avoid having kids testify because the judges want us to do what we can to have the kids avoid testifying. So in that first consultation call from a client that says, my kids want to testify, they want to, they're old enough to decide, a lot of that initial conversation is, well, there's a lot of different things that can happen before we even potentially get to that discussion. Yeah, I I don't ever want the kid to be the strongest piece of evidence that I have in a case. So right. we're, we're working with the other pieces of evidence to see if we can get to a different resolution than, you know, relying on the child testifying to win the case. Yeah. So I think the lesson here is there's no magic age for kids to testify. So whatever Google and Jeeves are telling you is wrong. Or your neighbor. Yes. And whatever happened in Plumber Joe, neighbor Plumber Joe's divorce is not relevant to your case. Don't forget that. So if his 17 year old testified in court and now lives with him full time, that's that has no bearing on what's going to happen in your case. As that that's always our advice, no matter what topic we're talking about, whatever happened in your friend's case is probably not going to happen. And we're assuming your friend is Plumber Joe. Right. So obviously, you know, talk to an experienced attorney um, about whether it's appropriate or relevant for your kid to potentially testify in court and what other alternatives are out there. And if you are in the process of divorce and you think that this is going to be needed in your case, talk about it right away. Yes. Don't bring it up the day before trial. (laughs) Or the morning of trial. Right. And bring your kid. Johnny's here to testify. And you're like, oh. That's not how it works. Yeah. So, all right. Well, um, so next time pink hair might be gone, pink zits might be gone, and we'll have a different color topic. Hopefully. (laughs) Good for both of us. Yes. All right. See ya. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Lady Lawyer League podcast and be sure to like and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. If you would like to learn more about our firm, Hightower Ref Law, please visit our website at hrlawomaha.com. We'll see you next week.